All right, welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we talk about opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, and we're glad that you tuned in. We are a national campaign that advocates for stronger federal policies that expand affordable housing for the lowest income people. But what makes us different is that we're bringing together new voices from other sectors to help us do it. Sectors like health, education, civil rights, anti-poverty, anti-hunger, faith-based, and more. These sectors are increasingly realizing that they can't fully achieve their own goals and priorities if the people they serve lack access to safe, decent, affordable housing. So we're building a multi-sector coalition and we're broadening the housing movement. This podcast really explores the connections between housing and all of these other sectors. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, criminal justice policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. But being able to afford a decent home is a prerequisite for opportunity in America. The promises that our elected leaders make every election cycle, better health, better economic opportunity, better education, those things can only be fulfilled if people have access to good affordable homes in which to live. So we talk to research experts, we talk to leading advocates from different sectors, and we talk to elected officials. I hope you enjoy and hope you learn something too. All right. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Richard Florida to the podcast to talk about the connections between housing and economic productivity. And Dr. Florida is a world-renowned urbanist and public intellectual on economic competitiveness and demographic trends and cultural and technological innovation. He is a co-founder and editor-at-large of CityLab and a senior editor at The Atlantic. He's a professor at the University of Toronto School of Cities and Rotman School of Management and a distinguished fellow at NYU's Shack Institute of Real Estate. So, Richard, uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. So in our campaign, Opportunity Starts at Home, we are focused on, you know, expanding affordable housing policies at the federal level and urging Congress to take greater action on the housing affordability crisis. And we're bringing together advocates from all these different sectors, health, education, anti-hunger, to help us make the case. And, you know, our belief is that housing is too important for housing advocates to fight alone, that housing shapes outcomes in so many other aspects of life. So, you know, when we talk to policymakers, uh, we make the case to them that affordable housing needs to be a bigger national priority because it has impacts in all these other areas. Um, And the bigger and more diverse our movement, the more effective our policy advocacy will be. And a really important connection that we're going to explore with you today is the connection between housing affordability and economic productivity. And unlike housing affordability, economic productivity always seems to be at the top of the national radar. Every congressional and presidential candidate from both parties prioritizes the economy. They pledge economic growth. People vote on growth. Presidents seem to be judged by the GDP numbers. You know, candidate Trump Uh, promised to raise GDP growth in his campaign. I mean, it's become a political imperative to promise productivity. Um, And so with that said, Richard, you wrote a recent piece in CityLab called How Affordable Housing Can Boost the American Economy. You link these two issues, and, and you also highlight a new study by the Hamilton Project at Brookings. And so I'd like to explore those concepts uh, that you wrote about in the article. So maybe we can start with 
a little bit just uh, historical context. And, you know, you start off the article by saying, you know, for a lot of the industrial 20th century, housing really helped drive economic growth. Today, housing plays a pretty different role. And I'm hoping you can, you can explain that, that change. Well, um, and, and also a little bit of personal history. So the really interesting thing about this from, from my personal history is, uh, although I am principally known as a scholar of economic development or economic competitiveness and the role of urban areas, cities and metro regions in that, um, both my PhD thesis at Columbia and I wrote an undergraduate thesis at Rutgers. Both were on housing and housing policy. So ah, my, original, my original intellectual interest uh, goes back to housing and housing policy. And the first several academic articles that I published were on the political economy of housing and housing and urban policy in the post-war economy. So it's almost as if you know, now with, with what I dubbed the new urban crisis, this crisis of affordability, of inequity, of economic inequality and economic segmentation has brought us full circle. So just to answer your question more specifically, mm -hmm. um, in the old industrial economy or what some political economists dubbed Fordism um, after Henry Ford, the, mm -hmm. the idea was, I shouldn't say the idea, the reality was that housing played a, a fundamental role in propelling that economy forward. And, and that's why often um, housing declines, uh, declines in housing production, the housing cycles often were seen to run in tandem with economic cycles and economic downturns and why housing was made such a priority. Um, re reminiscing back to those, those, those articles I wrote, Lord knows it must be 30 years ago. What we argued is that in, 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 in Fortis, in the Fordist mass production economy, um, on the one hand, you had these assembly lines and giant factories belching out cars and television sets and steel and washing machines and dryers that were kind of the bedrock of the American industrial system. And on the other hand, you had a system of suburbanization uh, where, where people were moving from the cities, like my own parents, to cities to the suburbs and buying suburban homes. And those two things worked together and in tandem. Uh, as people like my folks and millions upon millions of other Americans bought those suburban homes, uh, they had to buy a car, uh, maybe a second car for yeah. mom, maybe a third car for their kids. They filled them up with all those consumer durables, the washer, the dryer, the television set, the air conditioner, all of them made in America at the time. And they, they helped by doing so to drive wages up in those factories. That was also propelled by unionization and the Wagner Act and federal labor policy. Um, but as this, as this process worked, we got a, a wonderfully virtuous circle uh, between our mass production economy and its factories and the workers therein, the working class, and, and this American dream uh, it, it, it embodied in suburban home ownership. What happened, of course, mm -hmm. is uh, when I was a graduate student <laughs> um, <laughs> studying, we as a country began to experience deindustrialization, as I later discovered. Uh, we shifted from an industrial to a post-industrial or a knowledge economy. Sometimes I call that a creative economy. It's all the same thing. Today, in the 1950s, half of Americans were blue-collar workers. Today, less than 20% of Americans are blue-collar workers. And if we take out people who drive trucks and work in construction, we end up with about 5% of people working in factories. So housing is no longer 
the key driver of the economy in that way. Its, its role has changed, and it's changed in a pretty fundamental way, which is what my most, my most recent research is about. It's still important, but it's a very different kind of, uh, plays a very different kind of role in our, our, our knowledge economy today. Yeah, interesting. And so you, you also write about how, you know, today um, we have this, this clustering of economic productivity, uh, knowledge, innovation that's happening in the cities. There's the back to the cities movement. Um, creative workers are moving back to the urban core. And these now are, are hubs that are driving the economy. And the challenge today really is we don't have enough housing, especially affordable housing in these hubs. And I think, you know, one thing that that has really, uh, I think, been important and important for people to understand is that, to understand how much these hubs are really driving the economy. And the, you know, the U.S. Conference of Mayors has a report out, um, and they've and they've been putting this report out for a number of years. You know, showing you know something like 80 or 90 percent of all jobs that are added in the U.S. and 80 or 90 percent of all GDP growth in the U.S. is happening in those metro areas. Uh, and then when you particularly look at the largest metro areas, I mean, they're combined annual gross product is is greater than the combined GDP of a lot of, uh, you know, like 35 states. And so the rub seems to be this, and you, you tell me if I got it right, that without affordable housing in these places, workers, especially those without a college education, can't access good jobs in these places. And that actually functions as a, as a drag to the overall economy. We're, we're basically talking about lost productivity, right? That, that you have an entire class of people that are left out of places where the action is. Is that a fair characterization? Super. Um, no, absolutely spot on. So what, what happened, of course, is our, as our economy deindustrialized and became less of an industrial economy and became more of a post-industrial or knowledge or innovation-driven economy, people began to look at the clustering of firms. And really smart people said, well, what's driving this is clusters of firms in places like the San Francisco Bay Area or the area, mm -hmm. you know, outside of Cambridge and Boston along the Route 128 yeah. Beltway or, or in the suburbs of Seattle or the suburbs of Austin. And, you know, that didn't pose too much of a problem. But what really happened, and I think what dawned on a number of us, say, about a decade ago, is it wasn't just clusters of firms that was driving this. It was clusters of, of very talented software engineers and biotech folks and then highly educated mm -hmm. people and managerial workers and then, of course, artistic and creative and design workers. And you know, we're doing a big study of this now. We're actually looking at the clustering of these skilled occupations, and it's off the proverbial chart, you know. These, these creative and knowledge-driven occupations pack themselves into very small slivers of space yeah. in lower Manhattan or in the, in, the, in the areas of San Francisco abutting downtown or in Boston. or We can go on. And, and what has happened, of course, is, is, is you're back to a very pitched competition for space. You know, in the old economy, people were moving out. They were moving yeah, out of the city. They, they, great urban economists talked about this, the flight from density. Mm -hmm. uh, so housing prices near the core were going down. And, you know, you could put commercial buildings and office buildings and so on and so forth. Now, you know, you have tech companies and creative industries and financial firms and people competing for very small slivers of space. So housing prices are going through the proverbial roof. And, you know, it, it's funny to say it this way for the wonky ones out there like myself. If Karl Marx helped us understand the housing crisis of the old economy, we need Henry George 
you know, the great American uh, institutional yeah. economists understand the housing crisis of the new economy, where it's no longer the capitalists stealing from labor. It, it, it's the landlords taking the surplus from capital and labor together. So, so in this kind of environment, you know, housing prices go through the roof. And, and it's not even direct displacement, which is a big problem. It's that it, 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 it puts the level of housing in these, in these superstar metros and tech hubs so high that what happens is only the very advantaged third of us. You know, those of us who work in knowledge industries who are managers or in business, uh, in, in some of these creative occupations, uh, in, in research and innovation and tech, we can afford it even if it means living smaller. We may not be able to buy a big McMansion. Right. But that's about two-thirds of the workforce in many of these places, blue-collar workers and, of course, these service workers you know, who are doing all the things that our life depends on, preparing our food, servicing our homes, taking care of our kids and our ailing parents who get pushed further and further out. So you get two phenomena as a result of this. One is great economists like Enrico Moretti at the University of California at Berkeley have documented, because we have not built enough housing in these superstar places, uh, we get a shock to our national productivity, which is like in the trillions. I mean, it's a non-trivial shock added up over time. And then we get a, a problem where over time it's harder and harder for these places to run themselves uh, because they become, I don't want to call them quite gate, guilted, gated, you know, enclaves. They're not quite that yet. But it becomes very hard for, for young people to, to get in. Uh, only very affluent people. My students once said, you know, the only way you get into markets like this is the bank of mom and dad. Uh, yeah. Very hard for people to find upward mobility. And, and, you know, those of us who are older who bought in years ago have a benefit of our appreciation. But younger people, and of course less advantaged people, these service workers and blue-collar workers are shut out. So it's a double whammy. If, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's a very big shock to our overall economic competitiveness. And on the other hand, it's a terrible thing in terms of inequity creating you know, very segregated communities. And you know, one of the things that, that I've documented, which is so daunting, is you know, 20 or 30 years ago, about two-thirds of Americans, maybe three-quarters of us, lived in middle-class neighborhoods. Now about a third of us do. And we either yeah. live in highly advantaged communities in the urban center, or still many in the suburbs, or we live in increasingly disadvantaged and, 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 and shunted-off communities where our prospects for our mobility are quite low. Again, many in the urban center, an increasing number of these disadvantaged clusters in the suburbs, so it's it's a it's a double whammy of both a productivity cost and a competitiveness cost, and a very high price in terms of our economic inequality, or, or even more so in our geographic separation and inequality. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Enrico Moretti. There's a, a stat that I always talk about where you know he estimated growth between I think GDP growth between like the 60s and today, and he said it you know it would have been like 13 percent higher overall if families had better access to affordable housing. So I mean we we can actually quantify this this drag on GDP growth, and like you said, it's it's certainly not trivial. So the the paradox, or tragically, that that the places that are that offer the best hope for upward mobility, for future life outcomes, uh, are the places that are becoming increasingly unaffordable to live for the people who need it the most. Has it always been like this? Um, no. You know, I, I'm no expert on demographic no. trends or migration patterns, but it, it always seemed to me like a big part of the American story historically has been that people move to parts of the country that offer the most economic opportunity. Is that not happening anymore? Is it happening less? And it's, it seems to be driven by these crazy housing costs. Well, there's several things happening at once. Because of this basic clustering effect, 
this clustering of people, ideas, talent, knowledge, all cramming themselves into very small slivers of space in the urban centers of a handful or two, maybe a dozen superstar cities and tech hubs, um, that means that housing prices in these places have gone through the proverbial roof. Now, they've always, in Lower Manhattan has always been expensive. The Upper East Side has always been expensive. San Francisco right. has always cost more to live in than XYZ. But the mm -hmm. magnitude of the difference is what's quite surprising these days. It, it, they've always been, yes, there have always been places that are more expensive than others, but the magnitude of this differential is, is shocking. Secondarily, and because our economy has bifurcated with the death of the manufacturing-based blue-collar middle class, we now only have about a third of us who are doing reasonably well in knowledge-based industries and, and two-thirds of us who work in, in, in lagging blue-collar sectors or in service-based industries or, or tragically are, are the truly disadvantaged, the chronically unemployed. Um, we don't have enough to end, they, they don't have enough to make ends beat. So, so those folks are being yeah. priced out for sure. Um, mm -hmm. The second thing that is happening is you're absolutely right that many of these places do offer greater upward mobility or prospects for upward mobility, and the only people who can get a toehold on them are the already advantaged. You know, if in the past right. mom and dad gave you a great advantage by being able to put you in a very good suburban school system, uh, being able to put you in a private school, now that advantage is compounded because you often need mom and dad to buy you or to help you rent that first home in one of these superstar places. That's that I want to say something else, though. It's not like there isn't a housing problem in the rest of the country, and what's so daunting about this is, of mm -hmm. course, it, there's a, a humongous housing affordability problem in these superstar cities and tech hubs, but there still is a very significant housing affordability problem in the rest of the country. The reason right. is because incomes are lower. So, yeah. so it, it's, it's, it's a multi-headed monster, and it's, it's daunting. On the one hand, it's driven in some places by very, very high and escalating housing costs. In other places, it's driven by horrifically low income. <laughs> you know, and, and, and one yeah. thing I think yeah. is very important for folks listening in, many urban economists had a magic bullet solution. Um, economists that I like, uh, that, I, that, I, that I think do very good work, and but it's based on a very uh, basic logic. The idea was the problem with housing in the United States is we just weren't building enough of it. And that because of zoning and land use restrictions and onerous building codes, uh, we, the problem was we couldn't build enough of the housing we needed in, in Manhattan or in downtown San Francisco or in downtown Boston. And that, that is absolutely true, 100% uh, true. Right. But right. the point of fact is, as we've liberalized these zoning and building codes and we built more housing, because the cost of land in these places is so darn expensive, the housing that gets built is for really advantaged people. So mm. it's not like we don't have to increase supply. Of course we do. But simply increasing supply is a necessary but insufficient uh, solution to the problem. Uh, we need, in a way, to recommit to providing affordable housing and, and, and what some people call workforce housing, housing for workers and affordable housing for less advantaged people. And there's no way around that. We're not just going to build our way out of this by building more housing. We have to build more housing and build more affordable housing as well.
Yeah, you know, we um, at the campaign we often talk about the the solutions as there there has to be supply side solutions, of course, and there also has to be demand side solutions, such as you know housing vouchers or if it's a renter's tax credit, and then of course in the big scheme of things there also have to be solutions on the on the wage side of things. We can't have this huge gap in wages between I think what you what you call the the creative the creative class and the service class. I mean a huge gap in wages that um, we have to also deal with the the wage side too. But even on that on the housing side, it's it, supply is, is necessary, but not sufficient. There's a, there's a range of other uh, strategies as well. Um, well we, I wanted to, yeah, sure. Go ahead. No, I was going to say we agree entirely. And, um, you, you know, here's what I think the really daunting thing is and why your efforts are so just incredibly important. Mm-hmm. I, I think the scale of this problem is, is truly mammoth. It is massive yeah. when you think about both dimensions. On the one hand, you think about the supply side problem, that we're not building enough, and, and the supply mismatch. We're also not building right. enough where we need to build it, and, and so we continue to build probably too much in the exurbs. But, but there's a very interesting study by this guy, Izzy Roman, who's now the chief economist mm-hmm. at Trulia. He, he documented that we are building a lot in many center cities. It's the old, uh, close-in, often transit-served suburbs that are like the valley of death, where nothing has been built and where we really could increase density. So I think there's a whole bunch of things we need to do on the supply side. I think providing affordable rental and workforce housing, you know, I, the building that we rent in, in New York City um, is 20% affordable, and it's fantastic, mm-hmm. you know. I'm a renter there, and I pay market rent. Other people yeah. buy condos for a million or two million or a penthouse for much more than that. And there are people yeah. in that building paying a few hundred dollars to live in the same darn building. The other thing that you said that's so important is that we have to act on the demand side, that really mm-hmm. um, housing vouchers are an obvious part of the solution, but, but of course acting on the wage subsidies, wage insurance, universal basic income, all these things we need to do to make sure that people have enough to survive. You know, I, I looked at some data. That literally terrified me, and I want to qualify this for people. What we are looking at is, is for people to purchase a home at the median price uh, in a superstar metro like San Francisco and New York compared to the average wages that on average people take home. So we're not looking at what a particular worker has looked over. We're looking at the average. So, mm-hmm. you know, if, if, if the, if the pr- average price of a home in San Francisco is a million dollars, and a knowledge worker takes home $150,000 a year, it's X. But if a service worker takes home $30,000, it's Y. What was terrifying is in many of these places, a calculation done like that, people, if they were to buy a home at the average purchase price, would have less than $5,000 a year to pay for all basic necessities if they were wow. a low-income service worker. Now, of course, service workers are, are purchasing less expensive housing, they're more renters, and so forth. But just sure. that, 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 that fixates the mind's eye on how do, where, where the knowledge worker would end up with eighty or 90000 left over because their salaries are so much higher. In, in, in yeah. any event, what, what scares me about this and why I think your work is so important is I've been working on housing issues as an academic since about 1980 uh, as a graduate student. So that's a long time. And I've seen the federal mm-hmm. housing and urban policy situation only get worse. You know, um, after Carter, we had Reagan, uh, and then we had Bush, and then we had this reprieve with Clinton, uh, and then we had another Bush, and then we had Obama, and things were great. And now we have, oh, my God, whatever the heck we have now, uh, and polarization in our Congress. What I really worry about 
is that developing national solutions is really hard. And, and so I think we need to work on yeah. two fronts. I think we need to push hard as heck on these progressive cities and their mayors, uh, you know, the, in the blue cities, to develop locally-based housing initiatives, which is what happened before the 1930s. And we have to work at the federal level in tandem. But, you know, I think the yeah. kind of thing that's happening in California now, you know, we're making mm -hmm. some progress. I mean, yeah. not everything is Prop one, today, prop think, two, yeah. Yep, I think these... This two-track strategy of working at the local levels uh, and state levels and then working at the national level is our only way around this because I fear, my fear is our, our national level politics are so dysfunctional that we know, you and I know what we need, but getting that done is going to be quite daunting. The scale of the problem really does necessitate solutions at, at really all three levels, local, state, yep. and federal. Um, and I think a, you know, a corollary to this whole conversation is, is what we know about the importance of place, that where you live matters a lot, right? That your chances for better life outcomes aren't equal across the country, that job opportunities vary, life expectancy varies. I mean, in some parts of the country, life expectancy is in the low 70s, and others it's in the 80s. There's differences in college graduation rates and murder rates and income and obesity. There's these huge differences. So it, it really does matter where people are located. And this is, I mean, this is what Raj Chetty essentially found that, you know, when people move to more productive, healthier places, their life outcomes improve. So it seems to me that one of the, one of the key ways to break down the gaps in American society, and you, you know, you talked about it earlier, just the, the vast inequality on, on race and class. And one of the keys to breaking down this gap is to open up these opportunity areas and affordable housing seems to be one of the keys to do that, I mean, am I inflating the the importance of this? Is this one of the keys to narrowing the gap? No, no, you're you're not. Um, and I just want to say, in hand, all of these things, there, there's it's such a multi-headed hydra. Uh, on the one hand, you know, it's very important that we open up opportunities for affordable housing, uh, so that more people have opportunity in these very diverse, very innovative, uh, superstar metropolitan areas mm -hmm. and tech hubs. There's no doubt about that. That they. they and they offer in many parts of them. I was lucky, you know, my folks moved from North New Jersey to Southern Bergen County. You go from like Raj Teddy's worst level of mobility to one of his best levels of mobility. And my folks did that with a dad having a seventh education. He just thought the schools were better. So yeah, so yeah I, I think it's absolutely critical. Uh, but, you know, I, I wrote about a series of studies and actually talked to Teddy and his collaborators about this. That, that also find that in parts of small town in rural America, often close to major metros, often around bigger towns, mobility is also quite high. So, yeah. so it's interesting. It's not like we have to pack everyone into the superstar cities. Right, For right. many people, they may be well served picking a more uh, suburban or even a rural town if, if that's what they like. And one of the things that's so interesting about America is we kind of divide on the kinds of places we like. You know, some of us are urban, many are suburban, and some of us are rural. And, and what I think is really important in what you said was, place increasingly plays a central role in our lives. And um, yeah. there's a study out of LSE, I'm going to write about it. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to overstate the conclusion, but the, this was the conclusion. There are two things that depend, that determine your life outcome, and it's not really where you go to school or the quality of your school. You know, it, and in this study, mm -hmm. they said it, it's what your who your parents are, their level of education, and their income, and where you're born. You know, the zip yeah. code in which you're born. Yep. Wow. Now, no, okay, that doesn't have to be 100% accurate. If that's 50% accurate, it still scares yeah, me. Yeah, even. Crap yeah. Out of me. So, yeah. 
So, yeah. and, and, and look, it seems like it's probably has a lot, because it makes sense, right? It makes intuitive sense that, that your parents' station in life and your neighborhood are going to create a lot of advantage. So I think absolutely. Uh, and dealing with this housing part, and the, other, the other part I just want to say is, you know, thinking about this Amazon HQ2 thing, I don't want to go down that road too much, but you look yeah. at a big, smart company like Amazon, you know, with the best data analysis people in the world, and they did this whole scanning of 238 places, and they picked two. And then they realized, oh, in New York, people don't necessarily want us. Well, why? Because people are really attached to the place they live. A place isn't just a dot on a map that's an optimal location. People live there, and they're very attached yeah. to it, and their families live there, and their neighbors live there. So we have this emotional and human attachment to place. And I think that's what's so hard for sometimes economists or business strategists to understand. They just think, oh, well, we could optimize. But no, you know, a low-income person living in you know, downtown San Francisco or downtown New York wants to stay there and, and should be able to stay there, you know? And, and right. the thought of being displaced by this big corporate actor terrifies mm -hmm. them and makes them very politically active. So I think place is a really interesting part of our society in that, you know, it, one, of course we want to optimize for productivity, but we can't do that simply by, you know, paving over places uh, right. and, and moving them into higher, what urban planners call highest and best uses. We have to make sure that people who live in those places feel like they can afford to stay in them and can stay in them or, or, or else. You know, I, I said in one of my books, Mark said that the class conflict would be over the factory floor. Increasingly, if we do live in a knowledge and place-based economy, class conflict would be based on, on where we live, on our places. And I have to think yeah. that that prognostication is coming more true than I even anticipated. And there's... You know, I mean, there's just so many benefits, too, of in terms of diversity and creativity. I mean, you've talked about this before that, um, you know, when, when places don't have diversity, they don't have creativity. The creativity demands diversity. And so when you have just homogenous, extremely expensive housing, you get a homogenous population. And so there's there's losses in terms of diversity, and that has all sorts of social and moral impacts. There's losses in terms of creativity. So there's all these other uh, impacts that, that happen, right? Yeah, it's funny, you know, I, I asked the great Jane Jacobs, the late great Jane Jacobs, exactly this before uh, she died. And she just turned to me, and she had so many great one-liners. She said, Richard, but you know when a place gets boring, even the rich people leave. And she was pointing out places that had been high-income areas of great cities that had declined because of this homogenization. And I think we very much run the risk of that. Now, we've not seen a city. Yeah. You know, I've looked at all the data from, from my latest book, The New Urban Crisis, and no, that's not happened yet in New York or even London or San Francisco. Right. But we have seen that happen in neighborhoods. There has been this mm -hmm. landing in neighborhoods and turning into, you know, a veritable shopping mall. So, yeah, cities are big. People move around. They find less expensive neighborhoods. Development goes on. But, but we, we have lost already some very interesting neighborhoods to this process. So I think, I think it's a threat, you know, going along, if you ask me. There's an equity part of this, that everyone should be able to live somewhere and have a great house and have opportunity. Mm -hmm. The economic competitiveness piece of this is if this is allowed to run its course and we don't build enough and we don't add enough supply, yeah, th this could end the clusters. This could diminish or, or, or contract the clusters that our very livelihood depend on. And I'm very mm -hmm. worried now because, because now, because we haven't addressed the affordable housing situation, because we don't have a federal government, 
people are now mad at everyone. They're mad at tech companies. They're mad at their local government. Yeah. They just want it to stop. And I see we're coming to loggerheads. That's why I said in my book, it's not only a NIMBY thing, a not-in-my-backyard thing that we have to act vigilantly against. It's a new kind of urban Luddism. You know, the Luddites were, were the folks in England who smashed the machines very yeah. rightly because they felt their jobs were under threat. And look what happened to England. The United States and Germany surpassed it. If we don't get this right, you know, a place like San Francisco, which is in a very important to our economic competitiveness, or lower Manhattan, uh, it could be a very difficult, pricey, difficult place to do business, ugly place to do business. So I, mm -hmm. I think it's a, a national imperative that we work together uh, to make sure that, that our, we have the affordable housing we need, people have the incomes and wage supports they need, and we can be a productive and innovative and competitive nation. I think all those, as you said at the outset, those things go together, and, and if it breaks down, it's going to hurt all of us, not part of it, it's going to hurt all of us. Yeah, I was. you answered my, my next question. I was going to ask you, how does this play out, right? If we do absolutely nothing, how does this run its course? So you already answered that. And, and so I want to end with a, a more uh, optimistic tone, perhaps, which is, what if we responded in a big way? And, and, and my question there is, have, have enough people paid attention to the nexus between housing and growth, economic growth, that if we responded to this in a big way, if we responded to housing affordability in a big way, there would be a tremendous boost to the economy. And, and do you think enough people are paying attention to housing affordability as a potential lever to boost the economy? So I, I have to say in that book, The New Urban Crisis, I said I've gone from being perhaps wild-eyed or rosy-eyed and romantically optimistic <laughs> to being much more realistically optimistic. And I'm still very optimistic about the U.S. economy because I just don't think the top-down planned economy strategy of China is going to end up working. I still think the United States with 380 metro areas and thousands and thousands of municipalities and this federalistic system that we have with a split of authority mm -hmm. between the federal government, the state level, and the city level. And, and, you know, yeah, I mean, we are in dark times. But in the long scope of history, I'm optimistic, and, and here's why. The problem we have today is not playing out so much in the suburbs. It is. It's playing out in our largest and most diverse cities. So cities with mayors like Bill de Blasio in New York or Eric Garcetti in Los Angeles or Muriel Bowser in Washington, D.C. are becoming con contested about who gets to locate there, what gets to locate there, yeah. do we do affordable yeah. housing. They're not unidimensional, homogeneous, all-white suburbs. They're multicultural, diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-income places. So, yeah, I think the pressure will be brought to bear. And I'm, I'm amazed at how in the past several years there is a robust conversation in every city I go to, large and small, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Cincinnati. I could go down Pittsburgh, Denver. There is an incredible conversation. Now, has it congealed into a national conversation? Probably not enough yet. Are there enough economists who are convinced of this? Probably no, but... but among my colleagues in urban economics, do I see them wanting to work on this? Yes. Do, do mm -hmm. I see this ticking, you know, something in their mind's eye? Of course. So I see, you know, we're in the middle of it. It's hard to see where the outcome is, but, but I'm yeah. actually optimistic that we'll get this right. I, I also think, you know, here's what it's going to take. It's going to take some of these tech companies coming around. You know, somebody like Mark Benninghoff, the leadership he's showing and saying, look, we can't just extract from these places. We have to give back. We have to help solve homelessness. We've been advantaged. Um, yeah. I see also some of the real estate development community 
people at the Urban Land mm. Institute saying, uh, you know, we, people are starting to see us as Dr. Evil. Uh, we don't want to be seen that way. We have to be part, and in New York, many developers, right, at trading density for affordability. Yep. So, uh, you know, one of the things I know about America is when times get tough, uh, we, get, we come together. And, you know, I saw that because I'm a student of manufacturing competitiveness. I saw when our lunch was getting eaten by the Japanese and the Germans, we really organized to boost the competitiveness of our manufacturers. You know, we focused on our innovation yeah. economy. So now this is harder, right, because this is more social. At least to some people, this seems like social. Really, it is economic policy, but to some people, it seems like social policy and social engineering. No, I'm sure. confident we'll do it. I don't know the time scale. You know, the hard thing for me is to say, well, is it going to be a decade or two decades? But here's what I would say keeps me optimistic. If you had told me in the year 1980, when I was beginning graduate school, that I would see in my lifetime Detroit rebound, Pittsburgh rebound to the point people say it's gentrifying, that I would see the seeds of renewal in my hometown in Newark, I would have told you you're from the freaking moon. No. To see the urban renewal and urban revitalization of places people said would never be recovered, and what happened in 30 years, there is no doubt in my mind <laughs> that if we put our mind to this question of equity, of mobility, of competitiveness, mm -hmm. this isn't actually an easier, I hate to say this is, a, this is a wicked problem, but it's actually an easier problem to solve than that one. So in my mind's eye, you know, when I'm older and my kids are, entering into adulthood, my little kids are entering into adulthood, I do think we will have gotten, I don't know if we'd have figured this out, and the place certainly won't be nirvana, but, but or utopia, sure. but I do think, we, because we can't, be, at the end of the day, as you said, we can't run a diverse, knowledge-based, urban economy based on this inequity. It'll fall apart. Yeah. Um, so, so it's going to take these kinds of approaches uh, and I do think we'll figure them out. I don't know the mechanisms. I don't know the federal policy, state policy, local policy, private-public partnership. But, but I'm confident that we'll be in a much better place 20 or 30 years from now than we are now. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, certainly share the, the optimism. I know in the, the housing advocacy community, I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're really excited because this is starting, you know, housing affordability is starting to be an issue that presidential candidates are actually talking about, that it, you know, it says something that, um, you know, presidential candidates in 2020 feel compelled to uh, put out a major housing bill. And so you've seen it from Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, and you're seeing like major housing bills being issued in Congress. And they're, you know, so, so it says something, I mean, and this wasn't always the case, uh, but it says something that folks are putting a stake in the ground around housing affordability as part of a national platform. And so that's something that we haven't always been able to point to as well. So it does feel like there is something happening. But yeah, when you're in the thick of it, it's, it's sometimes hard to, hard so to let me, see. Let me say one last thing, which I think could, could help. Um, I think too much of what's happened in America is us versus them, blue versus red. Yeah. And I think if we could frame housing policy and affordable housing policy as something for some of us, maybe not all of us. And let me, let me phrase it this way. There may be some significant proportion of Americans who want to live in more affordable red states, uh, who want to live a more, uh, you know, a suburban lifestyle, and whom in their places don't think a housing policy is very necessary. Uh, they may want to do other things with their uh, tax mm -hmm. revenues. But there are others yeah. of us uh, who live in big cities, who live in blue states, who know that we need to do more on the housing and transit front. 
maybe if we just didn't make it seem like a one-size-fits-all, if we made it seem like communities could pick their path, and, and for some of us, we could pick a more suburban, uh, in, in many cases, less interventionist path. For others mm. of us, we could pick a more urban, pay more taxes, devote more of that tax revenue to affordable housing and wage supplements and, and transit. I think that would work. I, I think that if we could just think about things being not one size fits all, but being tailored to these very different conditions, I actually believe we could start to get bipartisan. I know it sounds nuts. But I think we could begin to see bipartisan support, and uh, that, that's where I'd like to see us go. Not a one-size-fits-all, blue versus red, my way or the highway. Something that provides a little bit uh, of attraction for people in different parts of the country and different parts of communities. Yeah, well, that's a good note to end on. I, it certainly does require some some bipartisan solutions. So, uh, Richard, I want to I want to thank you for your time. We're we're out of it. I know you got a busy schedule. This was really insightful. Um, enjoyed the enjoyed the conversation tremendously. And thanks for helping us kind of understand all these different connections and, and nuances. And I would urge our listeners to definitely check out Richard's writings. You can go to you know City Lab and his, his website. I, I always find what you write thought provoking. Um, and I want to again thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much, and just what you're doing so very important. I'm, I'm happy to be able to contribute just a, just a little bit to this a critical national effort, so thank you for having me.